You are listening to TMB DOS. They must be destroyed on site. The following podcast may contain language and discussions of a frank and adult nature, and spoilers regarding the films discussed are always to be expected. Thank you for joining us. Now start the show, Dr. Rausch. They must be destroyed on site! Welcome back. We are at episode 125 of They Must Be Destroyed on Site. I'm your host, Lee. How can you run from a dead person unless you're dead yourself, Russell? And I'm joined by my co-host, Daniel. A guy like me without a horn is like, well, a man without words. Harper, how you doing, sir? Uh, it's kind of impossible to do this joke on a podcast, <laughs> but I should really be without words that, you know, but... Uh, Really, uh, this just shows that uh, we don't plan this ahead of time. I hear the uh, I hear the introduction when you do audience, and my response is always genuine, and that's why it's never funny. So <laughs> for, for you kids out there, it's what's called riffing. Like we're really yeah, yeah. improving here. Yeah. You know, fucking, it's it's all gold. <laughs> hmm. But uh, yeah, we're we're back. We are sort of deep diving into some horror stuff for the next couple months. We're gonna go a little nuts on on the horror content because we haven't done a lot of horror in quite a while now. We're gonna be looking at Venus in Furs, also known as uh, Paroxysmus. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Paroxysmus. 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 Yeah. Maybe I don't know. Maybe I'll, maybe there's a silent something in there, but. Uh, um, that was the original title, anyway, uh, from 1969. But is that uh, the, the Italian title? I think so. Yeah, like it, like it. It seems like you know, paroxysmus, like and yeah. not ismus, like the like the Panama Canal ismus, but you know, like a, <laughs> like a disease. You know, that's interesting. Anyway, okay, please continue. Yeah, I think it's a made up word actually, but um, yeah. So we're gonna be looking at that. But before we do, we can just go into what we've watched in the last little while. And I know you have something, Daniel. So I'll throw over to you first. Sure. Uh, I saw <laughs> I saw The Incredibles too, mm-hmm. uh, just like just about everybody else in the world because it's uh, made a shitload of money. <laughs> uh, also, I have now seen The Incredibles too, but really, I kind of saw it 14 years ago when I saw The Incredibles. <laughs> because it's kind of the same movie done over again. I assume you've seen the original. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know how the original it ends with you know the Underminer shows up and you know like oh superheroes are kind of out in the world and like it's mm-hmm. a thing. Well, this film opens with that. It literally okay. opens five minutes later. You know, like the Underminer shows up and then you deal with the consequences of that. And then basically it's all about like, Oh, but superheroes need to go underground, but no, we want to be in, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of that same narrative again. And in fact, even the major subplot of the film about the, uh, the baby Jack, Jack, you know, kind of gaining his powers was something that was done in the, uh, there was a short film attached to the, uh, DVD release called right. Jack, Jack attack. Yeah. Uh, so this is literally, they had no new ideas and they just kind of, you know, 
they they just the sort same of movie again. They they, they, they sort of they sort of banked on the fact that everyone just kind of forgot the plot of the first one. Or, or, I mean, it's been fourteen years. I think it's I th- I don't know. Like it's it's well executed. Like it was an entertaining film. Um, it does have uh, some pretty horrifying reactionary politics, just like the first one does. You know, okay, yeah. you know what's really what's really terrible in society is that people with uh, special talents and gifts are just not respected in society. You know, the yeah. people have to hide. You know. Uh, so, so that's really the biggest problem facing the 21st century world. Yeah, um, it's uh, the biggest problem. Yep, I yeah. agree. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's it's worth seeing. It, it was it was not a you know sort of misspent two hours, but uh, it is it is two hours long. It does feel a little bit long um, oh, to okay. me. Actually, I think it's like an hour and 48 minutes or something. But it, it definitely uh, there's a twist, and you will see this twist coming a mile away there there you know there's no question uh it's barely even worth calling it a twist in fact it was so obviously signaled that i thought they were not going to do it i thought it was <laughs> but i won't say anything more than that um i mm-hmm. don't think there's any like real uh ambiguity about who the bad guy is going to be in this it's worth seeing but it definitely feels like it's a little bit by the numbers you know like it like it doesn't really feel like it's pushing forward and it just feels stale so, you know, it was entertaining. I'm not going to see it again. I don't plan on ever owning it. Some of the action scenes are, are really fun. Some of the, uh, you know, the technical merits of it are top notch because, of mm. course, they are. But there's just no real new story there. It just kind of feels like a complete retread. So, oh, that's, that's a little unfortunate. But I mean, kind of makes sense considering where superhero movies have sort of how far they've sort of come since the first Incredibles was released. Yeah. The original was in 2004. I mean, you know, Iron Man is 2008. So we're pre, you know, kind of Marvel film around that time in 2004. I mean, I think that was like two years after Spider-Man two, for instance. Yeah. You know? So, so we're kind of in that era of, you know, the superhero genre. You know, I read some interviews where Brad Bird has said he really didn't want to like comment on the superhero genre with the film. He just kind of wanted to do his own thing. And I'm like, I, I think that's a really interesting, I mean, that's a valid way to go. I completely understand saying, mm-hmm. yes, now superhero films are everywhere and we don't want to just kind of do the thing that everybody else is doing and comment on the genre. Um, both of these films are really kind of more Bond movies with, you know, superheroes is, you know, in yeah. place of, of spies in, in a lot of ways. And I think that that's a really interesting thing to do i mean it definitely gives it kind of an original take relative to the other superhero films that are out there it's just that it, i mean again it just kind of does the same thing and what it doesn't do that's repeating from the first film is just kind of like a 90s sitcom dad okay. you know yeah. there's 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 a very strong like mr mom subplot and it wasn't <laughs> nearly as bad as i thought it was gonna be mm-hmm. like i saw the trailer and i thought this is just going to be cringeworthy the entire way through and it is and it is again it's well executed it's well acted it's well directed. It is not kind of overwhelming. It doesn't quite go full on like Tim Allen reaction, Harry. You know? uh, but it uh, it definitely kind of feels. Uh, I don't know. It's it's just like one of those things of it's, it's kind of fine, but it's also man, you had such an opportunity to do something a lot more interesting with this, and it just kind of feels like they played it safe. If what you saw was, I really like The Incredibles. And I just want to kind of sit down and have more of that, you know, just give me more. Like you could almost take all the stuff in this film and just intersperse it into the first film as just sort of like bonus material. It does does feel a little bit like a lot of the, you know, like a lot of the action scenes are not, it's not like they're doing something new. It's just sort of like, well, 
this is sort of an idea that we had left over from the first film. And I, and it feels like there's, there's a lot of that going on. So if this one had come first, you know, I mean, if we didn't have the first film to, to compare it to, I think this is probably um, superior in the sense, I think it's better made technically, mm-hmm. not just in terms of the CG, but in terms of the, uh, uh, you know, it's it's a little bit tighter script, a little bit more kind of interesting character work kind of going on. And, uh, you know, they've just kind of learned a little bit about how to write these characters in the last 14 years. So, I mean, you know, it's not it's not valueless. I'm not I'm not claiming that it's just kind of it just feels tired. It just feels, you know, all right. This is, yeah. this is what we're doing. Yeah, well, I mean, it literally ends with Violet being asked on a date by the same guy that she's asked by on a date with from the from, from the first oh. film. Okay. <laughs> Remember, because at the end of the first film, the kid like asks her to go on the date. Well, there's a subplot about that where the kid's memory gets erased and et cetera, et cetera. And then at the end, they literally have like almost the exact same conversation, just in a different <laughs> setting. You know? I mean, when I say this film repeats everything from the first film, I mean this film repeats everything from the first film. <laughs> so it's almost like you're testing the waters to see, hey, do you guys remember The Incredibles? We want to do a part three, but first we want to just test the waters and see if you remember it. It's it's funny. I can remember uh, when I first saw the first uh, one, the Violet character. At the time, I was actually working with with a a woman who was basically the grown-up version of Violet. (laughs) And looked just like her. It was almost like I I felt like Mandela Infect or something happened where I fell (laughs) into a parallel universe. But yeah, I'll I'll probably probably see it. Um, Yeah, it's. I mean, if you can get a hold of it, I know you uh, often find it in various ways of of getting a hold of these things. Oh, always legal. It's it's not a wasted two hours. There's a lot of fun stuff in it. Sarah Vowell is the voice of that character. Right. Um, and uh, she is a, a kind of an old school NPR person and mm-hmm. is uh, like kind of she writes books about history, kind of kind of quirky, offbeat uh, books about history. Uh, she is really good. I remember she used to be on like the Conan O'Brien show back in the yeah. day. Um, so I've always kind of had a little bit of a crush on Sarah Val. <laughs> so, yeah, she's cute. You know. I like her. Yeah. So oh, also uh, the fact that it's Craig T. Nelson as uh, Mr. Incredible, I could not stop thinking about uh, Flesh Gordon. You know, <laughs> <laughs> this is my murder tower. <laughs> I, like I need, I need to see your titties. Mm. Elastigirl. <laughs> I have seen like a, a deluge of Incredibles porn parody since that movie uh, premiered. <laughs> yeah, I mean the, the thing is that now like animation is cheap enough that porn parody, animation porn parody, just sort of happens almost. You know, yeah, instantaneously. Mo- mo- most of it centers around the uh, Mrs. Incredibles, uh, but. <laughs> yes. Apparently, <laughs> apparently that's a thing. So, hey, whatever. Even our uh, Steam co-host Paul has uh, spread some of that porn around uh, in his Twitter feeds, I believe. <laughs> I wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> the only thing I'll mention that I watched, I just finished binging the first six or so episodes of the Luke Cage season two. Mm-hmm. Um, not bad. It's thirteen episodes, and it feels like we're already getting to the end of the story by about episode six. So maybe we don't need thirteen episodes. A lot like, of the Marvel, a lot of the Marvel series, kind of have that sense, you know. Yeah, Jessica Jones like has that like little three episode arc where they just kind of go off and do something else for a while and then come mm-hmm. back, you know. And uh, 
I mean, Luke Cage does it literally where, you know, we just got to put Luke out of commission for two episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This one actually feels like it's much more focused, though. It feels like they actually have the the amount of characters and story to kind of fill 13 episodes. I'll, I'll mm-hmm. sort of give them credit for that. Uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. There's a lot of fallout from the first series. Uh, you don't have to worry about, hey, we're introducing all the characters anymore. We just, you know, it's the characters and here's some new villains. Here's some old villains. Pretty good. Uh, again, the music's really good. I think that's one thing this series has over all the other Marvel series. This is the the connection between the music and the narrative and everything is sort of fits really well. So far, I'm really enjoying it. I think overall, so far, it's better than the first series. Like I said, there's just so many characters and they all have interesting stories. So I, I don't mind the fact that it's kind of stretching the series to 13 episodes because it feels like, yeah, you know, there's... There's different people to uh, sort of latch onto here, and and it doesn't seem like they're doing any sort of really weird turns with some of the characters, like they did with Jessica Jones season two, where they kind of threw some of the characters under the bus. And <laughs> yeah, I, I I I kind of I really loved Jessica Jones season one, and just sort of didn't continue with that. More of it's not that I do love Kristen Ritter, and I do love that character, and yeah. I don't know. It it does seem like the Marvel series, you know, kind of got like Jessica Jones season one and, you know, our, um, Daredevil. Not on. Yeah. Well, it feels like that there is a sort of like for a while they were kind of on this creative high point or even the sort of the, well, it's a little bit long. It's a little bit flabby. It's got some issues here and mm-hmm. there, but like, and then, you know, at a certain point they sort of turned into like all the conversation was like, oh, I guess that was fine. They just kind of yeah. lost their, creative juices and they just kind of lost the edge a little bit i'll tell you i've watched a little bit of the uh the black lightning series um this is just a bit kind of like my wife has been kind of watching it on netflix and this is in the uh, dc universe Mm -hmm. i'm telling you some of the you know they don't have the the budget and they don't quite kind of go for uh the kind of prestige television element as much as the marvel series does Right. But I've been really interested in some of the DC Universe stuff, um, just because it uh, it is kind of a little bit more overtly comic book, and it is a little bit more overtly, I want to say, like, crowd pleasing. Yeah, it's more fun, yeah. and it's more kind of gives a, a more of a sense of you know we can kind of go and we can just say, look, we're making TV. It's a little bit cheesy, but it's here for a reason. Seems to Black Lightning plays with some of the same ideas that I think like Luke Cage season one did. Right. Um, you know, it's literally like a superhero who's also like the principal of a of a you know majority black you know high school yeah. daughter like has powers and he's helping her to learn how to like control her powers, but he's kind of doing it as a dad and not like you know. And there's there's a lot of yeah, that's actually a pretty interesting little story there, you know. And there's a lot of kind of silliness that kind of goes along with it, but I don't know. Um, I haven't looked into that in detail it's more something that just sort of happens on my tv and i kind of look at it and it's like <laughs> i kind of miss the idea that tv could just be tv and it didn't have to be like prestige 13 right. episode drama like it could just be oh yeah that was a fun episode of that was 44 minutes of something that i liked to watch you know <laughs> like, yeah no it, it, it's kind of weird like uh dc and marvel sort of have they're like direct opposites when it comes to their tv and their movies yeah exactly the, the, yeah the dc movies are super serious the tv shows are fun and upbeat the marvel fucking movies are generally fairly fun and upbeat mm-hmm. and the tv shows are super fucking serious <laughs> i mean i think that the issue with the dc film franchise is that they've just they never got over the fact that like the dark Knight made a billion dollars. Right? right. You know, so everything has, you know, we've got to Christopher Nolanize this shit. Blum, <laughs> blum, you know. 
everything kind of has to be that, you know, whereas, I mean, you know, say what you will about Zack Snyder. If they had cast him with, hey, make a super fun Justice League movie, I have no doubt he could have done it. I think, yeah, know? I think he could have done it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I think they need to fucking fire Christopher Nolan, but I kind of don't like Christopher Nolan anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm a little over him at this point. So uh, Mike Murphy, that discussion was for you if you're still listening, buddy. <laughs> there were barely any Marvel uh, movie discussion in that. Yeah. That was that was entirely TV shows in, in DC Universe. And, yeah. You know, the Incredibles 2 came out. We had to talk superheroes for a little while. And we love you, Mike Murphy. Bring back fucking BB and BC, you son of a bitch. Uh, or, anyway. else, or else Lee and I are going to have to start our own BBNBC podcast spinoff. And nobody yeah. wants that. Like, no, literally uh, nobody. I, I will I will steal your intros and outros, Mike Murphy. I'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> we need to just start counting the, the, you know, we need to start counting boobs and body counts and yeah. pick a badass for every movie we do. <laughs> you know, regardless of the movie, you know. So when yeah. we do carnal knowledge, you know, like boobs, <laughs> <laughs> badasses, body counts, you know. <laughs> Only one more thing I'll mention before we go to break. I am on the latest episode of Cinema Beef with uh, Gary Hill. He's doing a little mini series on canon films and he's trying to pick some like obscure ones. So we did two Christopher Reeve canon films, Street Smart. And the film that was made due to Canon allowing him to make Street Smart, Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. <laughs> I saw Superman 4, The Quest for Peace in theaters when oh, I was wow. seven years old, believe it or not. I loved that film as a child. Probably it's... less so if I were to rewatch it. I, I think it's probably one of those where I have very clear memories of the film, believe it or not, even mm-hmm. because I watched it a lot as a kid. My feeling on that is it probably, I would not hate it as much as like the, the sort of critical consensus around it mm-hmm. is, you know, that there's some really, really stupid stuff in it that's, obviously stupid but it kind of had its heart in the right place in some interesting ways that that's kind of my you know memory of it it was christopher reeve basically saying fuck you i want to do my own superman movie and and here's how i'll do it so you know there's good and bad with that you know basically all the cast returns from the previous ones gene hackman returns he's given the worst lines he's ever said in his career but he still does them like a fucking pro (laughs) he also does voiceover work for nuclear man so, uh, oh, is he doing the voiceover for Nuclear Man? Yeah, that's not whatever that that uh, bodybuilder guy is or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, the the guy who's Nuclear Man was a Chippendales dancer before he got this role. Nice. Um, so Gene Hackman apparently was brought back to do like ADR a couple months later, and he just has to slightly lower his voice a bit and. <laughs> uh, Superman, uh, <laughs> give me my fucking check. I was just in Hoosiers, motherfucker. Hoosiers is one we should probably cover at some point. And yeah. we should definitely count the boobs in, in Hoosiers. That's the, you know. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I'll, I'll link to it uh, latest episode. Me and Gary had a lot of fun talking about these films. And uh, Street Smart has Morgan Freeman in his first big screen role as a pimp. And he's actually really fucking good. Like, he's legit scary in that role. Like, he's that damn good. I have not seen Street Smart, but I will have to definitely for sure all right uh we're gonna take a quick break we'll play a podcast promo we'll play some music and we'll come back to talk about venus and furs you ungodly warlock 
like blood, violence, freaks of nature. Then you come to the right place. My name is Gary and I'm your guide to Cinnamon Beef Podcast. Every episode, we not only deliver film reviews, we also dismantle some of your favorite and most hated films. Sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse. Hey, 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 you shut your face! If we want to hear you talk, I will shove my arm up your ass and work your mouth like a puppet! Alright, calm down, calm down. Every show I hope to have a new co-host, podcasters, listeners alike. That's right, I'm talking to you people. I take all comers. You're slats. That's not very nice. The only rules, well, let's ask the best cooler in the business. All you have to do is follow three simple rules. One, never underestimate your opponent. Expect the unexpected. Two, take it outside. Never start anything inside the bar unless it's absolutely necessary. So join the insanity and please vent your frustrations. I'm available on TalkShoe, iTunes, and Stitcher Smart Radio. And remember, here at the Sun Beef Podcast, if you got beef, I've got the grinder. You ungodly warlock.
right, now we're going to look at Venus and Furs from 1969. It started high on a lonely note. It all started that day on the beach near Istanbul. Or did it? It started the instant you saw her. blowing high on a lonely trumpet drifts from Istanbul to Rio de Janeiro but he can't erase a vision of death and beauty even a love like he has never known or dared imagine can make him forget tell me how did she hook your mind just how tell me please As if an unworldly desire could create reality, his vision is real. His Venus in furs is alive. Who are you? I don't know. Who is she? Tell me the truth. I don't know. And I don't care. She is Wanda. She is his Venus in furs. She is alive. And the coat that covers paradise uncovers hell. She returned from hell to take her murderers back, or was this hell? I know you. I met you a long time ago. Together, we united in death. Who is this elusive Venus? Is she the sex symbol of a wild fantasy? We escaped from the real world into a dream world that I never wanted to end. Everything ended a long time ago. Venus in furs, a masterpiece of supernatural sex. A frightening trip into the unknown by the unknowing. Venus in furs will be smiling. First thing I should mention, there's another film called Venus in Furs <laughs> from 1969 that is a sexploitation film. Uh, both these films are slightly based on the Leopold von Schacher Mausch. I'm totally butchering that. Some weird German name. The novel Venus It's actually Austrian, but yeah, continue. Oh, whatever. They're all the same. Fuck those people. <laughs> <laughs> I hate them as much as the Italians. Let's put it that way. But yeah, Venus in Furs, sort of a sexy novel. I guess there's like some sadomasochism sort of vibes to it. Or something yeah, I was like reading. The, I was reading the summary, and it looks to be a bit. I mean, it looks like a bit of a proto-feminist kind of thing that's right. also kind of heavily involved. I mean, I kind of know it by reputation more so than I know it. I have not read the novel, although, like having seen the film, and then kind of like I'm like, ah, I could probably throw a couple hours into that and, and check I, out the I was, novel. Sometime. Yeah, I was kind of thinking we should actually do the other Venus and Furs at some point. It's directed by Massimo Dallamano. 
and it's basically a really super close adaptation of the actual story, and it's basically just a sexploitation film, Euro sexploitation kind sure. of thing. And then there was another film uh, made in America from 1967, directed by Joseph Marzano under the same title. This title was basically thrust upon uh, Jess Franco, our old friend, who's the director here. He wanted to call it Black Angel, but AIP, who was basically producing or distributing this film, was like, no, you got to sort of title it this to try to get some uh, a little bit of buzz around it and sell the movie. So that's why it is. Directed by Jess Franco, written by Jess Franco, Malvin Wald, Milo G. Kukua, uh, Carlo Fada, and Bruno Litter. So there was a lot of writers on this for some reason. I don't know why, quite frankly. <laughs> and then I'm not saying an that... Extensive to... and extensive drafting process, clearly. You know? I guess. And I'm not saying that to disparage the film, by the way. We'll get into it. But uh, surprising so... amount of writers. If you are looking for this film, it is available on the Full Moon subscription if you have Amazon oh, okay. Prime, uh, which is how I watched it. It's a pretty good-looking print, um, although it doesn't, does not have subtitles, which always pisses me off when that happens. Right. Uh, because I do like to watch things with subtitles. And if you are kind of looking for it online, if you... Venus infers Klaus Kinski. That's the that's the way to find it. Yeah, it's a good way to do it. So this is starring James Darren as Jimmy Logan, and you may know him from the Time Tunnel in Star Trek: D Space Nine. He was also in the Gidget series. That that's probably his more sort of film wise claim to fame. Because after this, he kind of after this film actually he kind of did more TV than anything else. So yeah, he was on TJ Hooker apparently. I was yeah. kind of looking at him. He's he's one of those guys whose like face I recognize, but I don't have any like reference for him so yeah yeah he was a musician and an actor you know one of those guys in the 60s and 70s that was you know doing a little bit of everything like frankie avalon and all those sort of other guys right uh, he also, was he was the lesser elvis the lesser 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 elvis you know basically. better actor though way better actor um <laughs> well you know who is it? <laughs> <laughs> also uh barbara mcnair uh excellent barbara mcnair is rita oh, and yeah. she has some fairly significant acting credits as well she was also a musician what i know her from actually are the sequels to in the heat of the night uh, they call me mr tibbs and the organization where she's uh mr tibbs wife so I, I think i think those are i think we should do those three films at some point then uh because i would love mm-hmm. to see some more she's I mean, spoiler, she's great in this. I think she's actually probably the best actor in this. Uh, you know, which isn't, again, to, to disparage anyone else's. She's just really good. And I was definitely on the, like, I need to get on the Barman near train. This, <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, we might have a new podcast girlfriend by the end. We, we may very well, yes. Yeah. Maria Rahm as Wanda Reed. We're going to be seeing her again. Who just died like four days ago. Oh, did she? Holy shit, okay. I was looking at her Wikipedia page today, like half an hour ago. Oh, and man. It was recently updated that she died on June 18th. So, you know. That sucks. We have, we have a talent for killing actresses. I guess we do. <laughs> fuck. Oh, fuck. That sucks. We're actually going to be seeing her again, though. Uh, she was a, in a couple of Franco films. Uh, the next movie we're going to be doing, we'll get into it, but uh, she'll be in that one as well. Klaus Kinski needs no real introduction here as Ahmed Kortubawi. <laughs> Weird fucking name. Apparently he's supposed to be Turkish in this film, but I don't see how. <laughs> let's let, let's just uh, say there there's some racial issues in the casting <laughs> of this film. And the fact that Klaus Kinski is playing a character named Ahmed is not even the worst of them. 
you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dennis Price, who is a regular with Franco and as Percival Cap, you'll also know him from Twins of Evil, Vampiros Lesbos, Horror of Snape Island, uh, slash Tower of Evil. He actually was a fairly prolific sort of exploitation uh, film actor, apparently a notorious drunk, uh, sort of in the Oliver Reed mode, where mm-hmm. uh, no matter how much he drank, as soon as he got him on set and he was on his cue, he just could do it. He, it never affected his acting, apparently, uh, from what Franco has said. So there you go. Margaret Lee as Olga and Elfido uh, Lestridi as Inspector Kaplan. And uh, I'll throw over to you, Daniel, for your sort of initial thoughts. I know this is basically a first-time watch for both of us, I believe. So uh, Yeah, yeah. first-time watch. I had kind of started this last night and it was just kind of working on other stuff and, you know, to kind of... I don't know, it, it didn't quite grab my attention in that first, you know, kind of 30 minutes. So I just kind of like turned it off and then um, rewatched it from the beginning uh, mm-hmm. this afternoon or this evening after work. I feel like Jess Franco kind of like my, my response is that he's often, he's got a really strong visual eye. He's got a really good eye for striking imagery and he's got obsessions and interests. And this feels very much a Franco film. Well, you did not have to tell me this was a Franco film for me to <laughs> pick up on this pretty immediately. Oh yeah, this is just Franco. And that's a positive thing. And I feel like, I think that he's got a strong eye for this kind of stuff. I like that this film, he clearly has enough of a budget to kind of execute some of this stuff better right. than he would in, in some other stuff. But I also think that he is very good at kind of finding haunting imagery without necessarily being able to kind of put all of it together in a way that's kind of cohesive and coherent for a viewer. Mm-hmm. I feel like he's playing with ideas and he's got kind of stuff that he's interested in kind of exploring but he does so on, I'm not even going to say a superficial level, but just on a kind of inchoate level. Like, the, I don't feel like he's got like a particular thing he's trying to say as much as he's just trying to kind of throw stuff out there. And because there's clearly a, you know, I mean, A, this is kind of the same basic structure of She Killed in Ecstasy, which we uh, yeah. covered in the past. I mean, you know, where there's, you know, a woman killing people that she doesn't like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, just for, you know, in this film, it's like this sort of vengeful spirit who may or may not exist outside of time and we may or may not be in purgatory or whatever, you know, and that the, it may be all of this happening in purgatory. But so, so we're getting this, this sort of basic narrative of basic, you know, the thing is, you know, we kind of watch her kill these three people in these kind of tableaus of death and, you know, sex yeah. and, you know, all that, and which is great. I mean, that's, that's kind of the heart of the film, but it, it lacks uh Soledad Miranda for one thing, you yeah. know, it, it, it does not have that feature because unfortunately Soledad Miranda was dead at this point. She would have been amazing in the central role in this. She, um, yeah. She would have been the, the person. Yeah. Yeah, not that. Although I think Maria Rome kind of does what she needs to do here. I don't, I, you know, I don't think she's, she's bad. She's sufficiently cold and you know very. Uh, how could I put it? Very uh, guarded in her performance, like very just very statuesque and. Well, she's got a little bit, and I, and I say this without. Um, this is not meant to be a negative. She's got a little bit of like a waxen kind of thing to yeah. her. You know, she's got a little bit like <laughs> like a pallor. Like she looks like a corpse even when she's not supposed to be a corpse in the film. And I think that that, you know, works. I, I mean, A, that's, I mean, that's gotta be makeup. I mean, they're doing this intentionally. I'm not saying yeah. that the actress herself just kind of looks like that, but she's able to kind of convincingly portray this sort of dead eyed kind of 
you know, kind of object of desire in life and in death. And I think that that's, you know, that's not something that I'm going to discount entirely, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of her performance. I think it's, I think it's a perfectly fine performance. I think it's an interesting film, but I think that it's like, I kind of come back to like, what is Franco trying to do with this? Right. Like, you know, what do we end up with? And I feel like there's maybe some like, you know, there's a bit of a tr- kind of travelogue uh, element to the film. Yeah. Um, we see some uh, stuff in Brazil. We see some stuff in Morocco. We see, um, you know, what we've got. <laughs> there's sort of this decolonialization kind of thing happening. You know, mm-hmm. because we are talking about these kind of wealthy aristocrats who are kind of getting away, literally getting away with murder or not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, the vengeful spirit of the of the dead girl. And there's a kind of a slave narrative that happens at the end, which seems to be taken a little bit more explicitly from the book, although I don't think that it's directly lifted, but I think thematically yeah. that seems to come from the original novel. But it also kind of comes out of left field. Um, it's one of the, probably one of the better sequences in the film. I wish the film focused more on that particular relationship. But it feels like it's, uh, you know, it's sort of got this idea of like, we're going to just kind of play with these kind of supernatural themes and the supernatural idea. We're going to kind of leave you guessing about what really happened in the film, what was real and what wasn't. But I feel like it's uh, it could have been a lot more. I feel like it's got a lot more kind of stuff kind of going on underneath it. And it doesn't quite, it can't quite kind of keep all the balls in the air. It's 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 uh, kind of failing to uh, really kind of handle all the stuff that, it, that it's bringing up. And that's unfortunate because it's bringing up some really interesting shit, you know. Um, <clears throat> So if I'm if I'm damning with faint praise, that's probably why, you know, is that is I think it's well made. I think it's an interesting film. I saw a review that, you know, that basically said, you know, viewers will either be stultified or uh, invigorated by it. You know, you'll either be Mm -hmm. obsessed with it or you will just think like, what the fuck is this and start falling asleep. I found myself (laughs) kind of halfway between those two responses where I really do want to see it again, but I'm not sure that I'm going to gain anything from seeing it again. I don't think that it's well made enough to to really kind of get at something new. So anyway, that's kind of my overall thought, you know, in, in terms of the film is I like it. I think it's interesting, but I think it's more interesting than the film itself. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So I'll, I forgot to throw the uh, synopsis here, so I'll just throw the bare bones synopsis because there was there was a couple of long ones on IMDb, but uh, this was a really short one. A musician finds the corpse of a beautiful woman on the beach. The woman returns from the dead to take revenge on the group of wealthy sadists responsible for her death, which is fairly accurate, although there's a little bit more detail involved in that. But I, I like this film a lot, actually. Um, I think, if anything, this sort of further sort of helps the case that Franco actually was an auteur filmmaker and and much more accomplished than people give him credit for just because his near 200 credits, 70% of them are just absolute dog shit (laughs) because he was just making shitty movies for money. But I mean, like you, you, you said here, it feels like he actually has a budget to work with and he can actually sort of explore his ideas a little bit more, which I think sort of holds true here. I think honestly, you only really see the budget limitations where you see like some of the stock footage. That's yeah. Take, inserted. take the stock footage out of it, which is obviously stock footage, you know? And I mean, this film looks phenomenal. I have mm-hmm. no, like, I mean, I don't feel the budget limitation in this, you know, in the way that even with, you know, she killed an ecstasy or, you know, where, you know, they're right. clearly kind of shooting where they just had the, 
you know the money to film yeah um, they, i think uh, some of it might have actually been filmed in like the same locations as she killed in ecstasy some I'm of it looks sure very similar yeah some of it looks very similar I think it looks great. I think I think it's it really is just like if you'd had this kind of budget the whole time, you know, I think that a lot of the sort of technical stuff that you can kind of like ding him for kind of goes away. And you can kind of see that he's got, you know, it, it is kind of an, a horror art film. It's it's mm-hmm. kind of trying to do that thing. And that's a very kind of late 60s, early 70s European, you know, kind of kind of idea, you know. The thing is that these films basically died with the invention of the blockbuster, you know, yeah. five or six years later, right? You know, yeah. Which is which is unfortunate. Sorry, I'm 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 talking again. I was interested in what you had to say. I, I picked up a lot of interesting stuff from this. Like as I was watching it, and I, I don't know, I, I don't remember if you've seen these films or not, but uh, David Lynch, uh, Lost Highway, and Mulholland Drive. It it feels like David Lynch must have seen this film because there's a lot of similarities here. There's sort of the unreliable narration kind of thing going on. There's a lot of sort of dream logic to this where it seems like in certain places it's jumping back and forth in time. There's there's definitely a repetition of images here and there in the film. So you never really know what's going on. Like the narrative really sort of fractures around. Things seem to be more focused on building up uh, emotional responses and uh, uncomfortable responses than it does narrative logic or anything like that. Like the, I guess the term is emotional logic instead of narrative logic mm-hmm. in the film kind of an idea. It also helps that the score in this is amazing. Like there's just this really, oh, yeah. and it's both actually being played in the film. And then there's the score overneath or over that as well. So you have like Manfred. Overneath is the sign that we do record this late at night while drinking. That's yeah, the, you overneath. Know. In, in case in case the audience of this podcast was unclear about the production value that we bring to this. It's a, it's a Franco film. It can be overneath. Um, I'm going to argue yeah. that it can be. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, Manfred Mann, the, the band Manfred Mann, is doing most of the jazz stuff in here, yeah. as well as Franco is in is in the band. I don't know if yeah. he could actually play jazz I, or not, but... I, I, I I think I, I think I read somewhere that he was actually playing that he that he actually like it makes sense if he plays the trumpet if like there there might be a little bit of you know kind of author self insert here there, you know? there is sort of a uh, a jazz sort of infatuation with with Franco apparently when he was originally sort of conceiving this he actually was talking with jazz musician uh, Chet Baker mm-hmm. and and he first conceived this as a biracial love story where it was a sort of Miles Davis figure in love with a white woman who was not real. She was sort of like a dream apparition and it was sort of conjured. I don't know what, I don't know what it's called, but there's like this sort of state that jazz musicians get in or big band musicians get in where if they're playing like a trumpet or some sort of instrument like that, where it takes a lot of breathing control, they can sort of get lightheaded and stuff because it, it just takes so much breath to you right. know keep the performance going. And it was sort of going on the idea of like, you know, like a combination of the party scene, drug use, all that stuff in sort of going together with that sort of uh, playing the instruments and, and what that does to your mind uh, the idea that this this musician would conjure this fake woman 
uh, in his dreams that he starts a relationship with. And I mean, you see some of that in the narrative with Darren here where it seems like he's just gotten off like a really bad trip or something like that. Like he doesn't know what's real because he's just sort of wandering around the beach. Like he almost just detoxed from a bad overdose or something like that, you know? Yeah. I mean the whole thing, I mean, it feels like it's, it's funny how like uh, for this kind of time and place there, there are no drugs in the film or at least mm-hmm. kind of not overtly. It is kind of one of those where you can kind of see, Sorry, one of the comments my wife had when uh, we were watching Carl Knowledge last week uh, was, you know, during the uh, during the sequences set in the 40s, she's like, yeah, this is very clearly like they're smoking weed, but the film isn't saying they're smoking weed. <laughs> I kind of get the feeling there's some acid involved in the, you know, in some of this. And there, there there's some drug use that's kind of happening, but they can't like talk about the fact that it's drug use. If you kind of see it through that lens and that kind of makes some of the, you know, kind of the slightly incoherent uh, narrative structure kind of makes sense as well. You know, you can definitely view it as a drug movie. It's just not something that I have a lot of experience with, so I don't tend to right. kind of think of it that way. But you're right. Yeah, you mentioned dream logic. Dream logic is a huge part of what's going on here. Um, it does kind of follow the emotional arc of the character. The thing is that for, for me, what I run into is that it's sort of got a two parallel narratives that don't necessarily interact in ways that I find interesting. And that is that the sort of the James Darren character, um, the, the trumpeteer, the, the musician has this sort of uh, obsession with the dead girl <laughs> Wanda, yeah, with Wanda who that is kind of interfering with his very solid relationship that he has with his, with his girlfriend, um, Bobby yeah. McNair. She's great in this. I hope we do kind of come back to her in a second. So it's sort of about his obsession with this girl and how that this sort of dream girl or this ghost girl or whatever is sort of like getting in the way of that. And maybe there was a real connection when she was alive and maybe there wasn't, and maybe this is all purgatory or whatever. But then there's also this sort of like sub narrative that happens, which is, you know, this woman kind of going after the three people who murdered her, you know, and, and sort of the larger narrative around, you know, the, this sort of aristocratic elite kind of doing whatever the fuck they want sort of thing. And I feel like those are two interesting stories, but they don't necessarily go together in this film. Yeah. I think that's part, like once we got into the, like, Oh, we're watching, uh, we're watching, um, Marissa Raw, we're watching Wanda kill these people. I'm like, Oh yeah, I'm kind of down for this. I mean, there's some really interesting visual stuff kind of going on here. And uh, this is this is the stuff that I found really interesting. But I kind of forgot about the like the framing narrative a little bit. So then when we do kind of come back and it's like, wait a minute, what what's the trumpeteer doing this whole time? You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting because it seems like Wanda's spirit sort of manifests through people's memories and dreams of her more than anything else. Because she's clearly, if, if you take this for reality, and I do, she's clearly killed near the beginning of the film, mm-hmm. and. James Darren witnesses this. Now, I'll, I'll get back to this at some point because I, I think this is one stumbling block that the film needed to, uh, they needed to fill in a little bit of information and would have made the ending actually work much better. But it seems like she's being manifested through Jimmy's sort of dreams, his his guilt over watching her being raped and killed and not doing anything. It, it, it seems like that's what's sort of manifesting her. And she. it seems like she still exists in at least two of the killer's dreams to the point where, you know, they're obsessed with her. Olga, who is the lesbian fashion photographer, mm-hmm. she's, the only, she's the only one who actually has any regret or guilt over the death. So she's actually, it, it's weird, she's actually given a different out than the other two killers. Yeah, because she kills herself in the bathtub. 
Yeah. yeah. And so it's kind of it's kind of playing around with that. Like, again, it, it's a very sort of Lynchian before Lynch existed kind of thing, because everybody sort of sees her differently. At times you see her with long hair, you see her with short hair, you see her with red hair. So it, it, it almost seems like it's a construct of their like memories and imagination of her or what they want her to be almost. And in right. either way, the in the Klaus Kinski character, like you almost get the sense that, that happened like you know forty years earlier or something. Like you, you, that that seems almost like a like an overt. This happened in the twenties in the Ottoman Empire. Or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, like, yeah, he he talks about when she comes for him, and it was a little confusing because he he talks about this tale of like an ancient Egyptian uh, prince or sultan or something like. Actually, it's yeah, it's pre-Ottoman, actually, like some sort of sultan of, in the area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, does this switcheroo with a, with a slave who hates him, where he allows her to rule him for 24 hours, and, and he bends to all of her will. So there's a, there's a neat... Um, actually, throughout this entire film, there's kind of like a, a sadomasochism, BDSM kind of vibe through a lot of the stuff. And so that seems to be his fantasy. Like, he wants to recreate that scenario. And it, it seems like he's probably recreated that a lot of times because he's just this rich asshole who has all the time on his hands to do this shit. Yep. But when she comes to him to take revenge, she just ends up, you know, apparently he gets to, like, relive this this fantasy, but for real, and ends up dying. Because she seems to kill them in their dreams and memories. The, the first guy she kills, she just sort of appears to him as sort of a sort of a shade, a shadow, a ghost. He tries to initiate sex with her basically, but she's not really there. She just like she jumps to like almost in, inside his mirror or whatever. And... It's the it's the Dan Aykroyd blowjob scene from Ghostbusters. <laughs> but you know it's done, the sinister done, done for real. Yeah. It, yeah, well, really well, yeah it's the really actually um, the direction in that scene is probably my best, uh, my favorite piece of direction in the entire film, because I think it's, uh, I think it's it, one of Franco's best sequences ever. He's done. It uses, it uses mirrors and I really, a whole chunk of that scene is done in one shot where, you know, you mm-hmm. kind of are cutting back and forth between the two perspectives, but through one single camera move, looking at, it mirrors and uh you know it doesn't you know me describing it may not like sound like much but it's really effectively done and really uh, is oh the the shot where where she's like he he keeps imagining different like sort of shots of her basically where well while he's uh being basically uh built up to a heart attack or wherever the fuck kills him the one where she's licking her lips like yeah oh that, god yeah that's good stuff <laughs> There's some there's some very sexy stuff in this as well. Um, you know, mm-hmm. Franco knows how to really get at that like kind of creepy, sexy, murderous, you know, horrifying kind of. You know, he he finds that line and is able to kind of push it really well, and it and it's really effectively done here. I mean, very little of this film feels like a kind of one handed viewing for me. If you if you get my drift, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> But at the same time, it's it's uh, it definitely kind of uh, has some moments that are uh, much more sensual than you necessarily think it would be in kind of a more straightforward erotic kind of horror thing, you know? Right. You know, it doesn't do the thing of like, oh, we're going to show some boobs and then also like, you know, put some blood on them just to like prove that, you know, oh, this is horror or whatever. Like, And it, I mean, it really is kind of thematically riding the edge of like, this is sexy and terrifying. You know? Yeah. And I mean, in, in movies where he had less money, Franco did those sort of things where it's like, let's throw blood on boobs and you know, yeah. that's the movie, you know? Sure. So, I mean, I'm not even criticizing that like as no. a technique. 
thing that you do, you know, but like it is, it is more interesting. Uh, I mean, just visually, I mean, there, this is, a, this is a, you know, I don't want to say like sumptuous feast of like visual arts, <laughs> but it kind of is a sumptuous feast of visual arts. Like this is a very visually fascinating film. Yeah. Well, like, you got, I, I actually respond to this and, and this is a thought that I had is that I almost wish this was a silent film. Uh, there's very little dialogue in this that you yeah, cannot it's true, do yeah. in a, in a, in a um, in fact, like all the dialogue sounds 80 yard and it sounds terrible. <laughs> That's like my one, yeah, like, it's like a, it's like a, James Derrick has this like noir narration for the most yeah, of, most of it. it. It sounds like what they were doing was, uh, you know, like, uh, Franco was used to filming in several languages and then you just kind of ADR in all the, you know, into English or Spanish oh, or yeah, whatever that's... later on. And it, f- it sounds like they did this with this film, but everybody was speaking English anyway. And so it just sounds like none of the dialogue, it, it, nothing sounds like it was it was filmed in the moment. And it's all kind of just bad ADR, which yeah. I understand that that's just kind of how like low budget looping sounded at that time. Right. Um, I'm not like kind of necessarily, good, but it, but it really is one of those things that just immediately takes me out of the film. Yeah, because they had to sell this to basically what it's AIP. They're selling it to yeah. an American audience exclusively, almost. Yeah. Um, so you had all these actors. Some of them are obviously German, uh, whatever European mixture of actors. Not necessarily all of them speak English, so they were probably just doing the lines. You know, some of them were probably speaking phonetically, even you know, and then they just dubbed it all in afterwards. That's the way. Yeah. They would always do this shit, right? Yeah, a but lot yeah, of cameras, a lot of cameras used on low budget films at this time didn't even like they didn't even have the ability to record sound. That's right. Like, yeah. Mean, you know, yeah, James Darren's uh, narration here, very uh, kind of noirish kind of thing, and and I think he's pretty good in this too, honestly. Um, yeah, and and we should we should talk about like his relationship here with Rita. Rita's excellent. She's she's kind of like the thing that grounds this film in reality more than anything else because her character is kind of you know almost only the real character in the only real character in this film to a certain. Well, she's she's a she's the one like not white person in the film basically. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like so like when there's like one black person in a, in a cast of white people, there is a certain sense of like, well, what is the filmmaker really trying to do here? And let's give him credit, but also like wonder, is there some, is there some like kind of subtle thing he's doing that we're just not anyway, Barbara McNair is phenomenal here. I have, mm-hmm. I've said it before. I think she is the best performer in the film. Um, she is. And I, and I use this term knowing that it can be misinterpreted, but she gives a very earthy performance. Yeah. Um, and I say that like as a performance and I, like not talking about her as a person, I'm not trying to like be racist. <laughs> by saying that. Um, what I mean is like, she is grounded, as you said, you know, she is, she is definitely kind of in the here and now, I don't know what she even sees in this guy, honestly, you know, it's like weird, it's, isn't it? she, she's way out of his league. But like he's obsessed with this ghostly apparition girl that he's you know kind of seeing, and maybe you know the idea is that he's obsessed with her because he saw her die or whatever. I don't know, like mm-hmm. something, I, some, I some more complicated thing. I think I think she knows him by reputation, and they struck up sort of like a relationship in that fashion, and yeah, yeah. and and she got involved enough where she didn't know what she was getting into, but it at that point she wants to make it work, you know, it's like, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, she's the most human character in this, you know, and like, yeah, she gives the best performance. She's not the most seasoned actor in this. Like I would argue probably Klaus Kinski probably is, but he's ADR. He's ADR at the fuck. His voice doesn't match him at all. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, Klaus Kinski is an amazing actor, but mm-hmm. you, I'm not like connected to his performances. I mean, he would he would be the kind of other obvious choice for best actor in this, right? He yeah. acts um, he acts with his head his forehead veins is what he acts yeah. with. <laughs> I mean, I do I do wonder like you know we don't even necessarily I mean I don't know I'm kind of on the we don't need the Barbara McNair character. In the sense of, you know, if it's just kind of about James Darren's obsession with this girl, it just kind of gets in the way. It makes it confusing. But but and then of course we don't even really need James Darren's character in this. I mean, this is really about the vengeful spirit thing. But then Mm -hmm. you really are just remaking She Killed in Ecstasy. So you know, what's the well? Yeah, here's my sort of thoughts on how the ending could have been better and how it would make more sense. I I still think the ending on this is really cool. Just the Mm -hmm. the sort of subtle twist here. It's kind of like a Twilight Zone kind of twist. Doesn't make a lot of sense as the movie stands. But if they had managed to at the end have Jimmy's character finally start to remember everything mm-hmm. where he remembers a scene where he tried to stop these three from killing Wanda and he ended up being killed himself. I think oh, the entire, yeah. I think the entire narrative would actually tie together much better, but as it stands, it's just he pulls his body out of the surf at the end and it's like, okay, it's really weird. It's kind of creepy. doesn't really make any sense because yeah, it's just it, the, the idea that they're both ghosts coming back and somehow facilitating this revenge and he just doesn't quite realize it till the end. That actually narratively kind of makes sense because in one of his conversations with Wanda, Wanda doesn't seem to know who she is or remember who she was. She just seems to know she wants revenge. So kind of the idea of spirits coming back who don't really know what actually happened. All they, they have this sort of drive for revenge and they're just sort of avatars of vengeance more than anything else than they actually are the real people in spirit form. I think that's a cool idea, but the movie doesn't do that. It it just kind of makes it feels feels like, you know, Franco had this sort of like plot that he wanted to do with the, you know, the kind of the vengeful spirit coming Mm -hmm. back. And then he had like this, (laughs) he just had to put the author insert in, like he just kind of (laughs) had to, you know, like throw in the obsession, you know, kind of thing. And it's, I mean, the movie is only like an hour and 24 minutes long or something. So, you know, it sort of makes sense that, well, uh, yeah, I I think the framing narrative sort of makes sense. It just sort of, I don't know. It just, it, it again, it feels like two movies kind of like fighting for space a little bit. Yeah. I mean, uh, from what I've been reading, apparently Franco's original idea had nothing to do with revenge or anything like that. Like, again, it was, it was a relationship between a black musician and this sort of mm-hmm. fantasy white woman that he was in love with. And, you know, AIP is like, we can't do that. Um, we can have a white dude with a black lover. That That's great. But we can't have a black man romancing a white woman because, no, can't do that. Uh, 1969, can't do that. The the irony being that, like, uh, today you see it the other way around. You see, mm-hmm. you know, uh, usually it's a black male actor with, you know, a white actress. It's right. you know, much, much more common. Right. You hardly ever see, like, white actor with a black uh, girlfriend or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but but I, I don't think Franco even necessarily intended this to be like a supernatural revenge tale. I I think his focus on this was actually obsession. It goes on every level, like with the narrative of the characters, his obsession with jazz, the way jazz music becomes this thing that if as you're playing it, absorbs you and takes you away to places you never even intended or realized. That kind of idea, I think, is kind of hidden in this. Jazz then, is a drug. 
Jazz yeah. is, is it? Yeah, yeah, no, I yeah. get that. Yeah, no, and, and and I think unfortunately the producers and the money men were like, we need something else here. We need some blood. We need some sort of supernatural shit. We need to make this something we can sell and drive-ins and theaters and stuff. So I think that's where that sort of comes from. You know, he's got to try to balance these things. And I think he does a fairly good job, all, all things said and done. There's probably no grand design connecting all these things like you would have with maybe uh, David Lynch with like Mulholland Drive or uh, Lost Highway. But at the same time, there's at least an intent there to try to... Yeah. Well, well, I mean, I think the issue is that like Lynch and uh, Franco are kind of working from the same sorts of like impulses and source material, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the same kinds of ideas of the sort of surrealistic, uh, narrative-free kind of kind of logic, and you know where things connect emotionally and based on theme rather than narrative, right? More so than like you know Lynch is necessarily influenced by Franco, although you know it's entirely possible that Lynch has seen a bunch of Franco films. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. I get that logic that that you know the issue that's kind of what's going on here is that you know even though this is kind of a bigger budget than he had to play with most of the time and even though you know there is it's uh, kind of exceedingly a it's, it is quite well made for you know a film of this mm-hmm. kind at this time it's still made quickly it's still not you know something that he had like years to work on to right. kind of, kind of and, you know it's also pretty obvious from looking at like the rest of franco's work at least from what i've seen that like script is not his strong point no. you know so the idea that he's kind of like he has an idea and then he's just recycling other elements and then kind of using them i mean you know the idea of like even like thinking too hard about kind of what the plot is saying is kind yeah. of like missing the point here i think that the one thing that i would say with the fact that he has a a black girlfriend feeds into this and i you know, particularly towards the end when we get to uh, the Klaus Kinski, um, you know, kind of subplot, the, you know, his death, because that is very much a, a sort of colonial narrative. Like, that is a decolonialize. Uh, that is a narrative decolonialization, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just kind of filtered through this kind of horror lens. And one of the things that I look at when I think about horror films is, you know, like, what is this, you know, what is the thing that we're responding to what is who is this speaking to and why is this scary to people you know and the answer is because like it turns out that like all those people we've been oppressing for this last hundred years (laughs) have opinions about how we've been doing that and like if we had to be their slave for a day they would fucking kill us you know and that's what you know and that's what that whole thing is about and uh on that level the fact that he has a black girlfriend you know is speaking to that same you know those those two things are very clearly connected and the fact that she is much again earthier much more grounded she is not like kind of a part of this kind of big rarefied you know aristocratic world she is not you know murdering people for fun because you know she can and the fact that maybe these two just kind of bond over music and they have a relationship and maybe you know, he just doesn't quite get, you know, he's more interested in the ethereal waxen figure of this, you know, gorgeous mm-hmm. blonde, as opposed to the like amazing girl who's kind of right there. And that's, uh, I mean, there is something there. There is a kind of an idea of like that, that this is kind of all connected, but the film isn't really connecting it. The film isn't really kind of giving us that. It's just sort of presenting it as images. And I think that that's kind of, that's just kind of Franco. He's just kind of, like he's got some ideas, but he never has either the time or the energy or the wherewithal or the, you know, just kind of, 
the money to really like I, I think put he's it together I think in a he, coherent way. You know, I think I think he's like Fulci, where he actually just doesn't give a damn about narrative. Like he's yeah. much more interested in image and sort of dream logic kind of stuff, like an an emotional sort of resonance of images and things like that. Like he he he, he could give two shits about characters talking to each other. Yeah. Like it just doesn't matter to him. Um, Which is why I say, like, if this were a silent film, he even does the, like, let's put things through a blue filter and a pink mm-hmm. filter. Like, if I was just so much on the, like, this this might as well be, you know, intolerance or something. You know, like, <laughs> you, you, yeah. could, you could have made the big bulk of this film in, like, 1917 is what I'm saying. <laughs> right, right. And, and 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 Rita's interesting. Like she's she's almost uses like a thematic connection to the underpinnings of the story. Like when she's singing, every time it comes up, Venus and Furs. Every time uh, Wanda kills, you hear Venus and Furs. You hear that song come back again. Uh, and then at the end, she sings it as well. And uh, I don't know. She's almost she's almost, almost like a, a, a herald or uh, some sort of in some weird fashion of of the whole sort of message of the story what that message is, you know, it's for everyone to sort of interpret, but she seems like she's kind of like the grounded sort of connection to all the sort of themes that are going on in the film. Even the fact that like her first like musical number is she's lying on a floor and singing. Withering on the floor. Yeah. Like, which, which is this bizarre image that just like sort of speaks for itself that we're, you know, it, it, it speaks to this particular kind of moment in the culture as well to where, you know, like all of this stuff that, you know, these parties aren't happening like these, like the, the nightclub sequences. It's not like in public. It feels like, it feels like this is like, these are parties like these are, you know, these are a bunch of people sitting around and doing Coke and you know, mm-hmm. fucking each other, you know, when they yep. reach a certain state of inebriation. And so what they do is they hire the, the, you know, African-American woman or the black woman to uh, come in and entertain them before they, they do their, they do their thing, you know? And I don't know, like the economics of it are kind of interesting, you know, but like the <laughs> economics of, of a musician kind of working in this, in this world. And uh, you know, again, the film isn't, uh, isn't exploring that it isn't really interested in that, but it is, it is something that it's definitely there. It definitely feels like, I mean, it's hard for me to not think that Franco went to these parties and that he is yeah. in some sense, he's talking about himself and his own anxieties and his own like feelings about the other people. He's kind of hanging around at these kind of like drug fueled orgies, basically. You know? <laughs> like, I mean, he's looking at himself and he's looking at his, uh, at, you know, his, his kind of like social circle. Now I'm making some assumptions here. I don't know mm-hmm. anything about like Franco's personal life. And, and I mean, it doesn't really matter, but then that's definitely a reading that I have is that, you know, it, it, this is like him expressing disgust for the people that he surrounds himself with in order to make films, you know, at the very least, it feels like he's definitely commenting on his own personal experiences in these sort of this, this sort of world, the, the way those scenes are constructed, the party scenes with the band playing and stuff, they feel super authentic. They feel like they are right from something he's been in that they feel they feel scuzzy and run down in the ways mm-hmm. that they would actually feel scuzzy and run down mm-hmm. and i and i like the idea that the uh that that rita's not using a microphone to sing it's just her voice projecting and there's one scene there's just one scene in one of the party scenes where rita's uh, at a table with this other guy and this guy's like critiquing modern music these bands these days 
they have to have a microphone to sing. It's it's not authentic like we do, where where you know we we don't use microphones to sing and shit like that. It was it was a weird this little aside that he threw in there that I thought was interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. I missed that bit of dialogue, but you know I often miss a lot of the dialogue. <laughs> I, I was not paying attention to the dialogue. Um, yeah, well, it's very little dialogue. It's yeah. So I mean, the yeah. first thirty minutes of the film. I mean, there's. I mean, maybe. Like twenty lines of dialogue in the whole thing, you know. And so, <laughs> I mean, there's just it, it, it's uh, you know, and that's either going to work for you or it's not. That's just sort of a, right. the reality of that. But um, yeah, yeah. It, it might it might have actually been easier for me if this film were subtitled or like in German or whatever. In terms of like, then I could just kind of get into it. I don't know. Sometimes these kinds of films would work better for me if I don't have to listen to them you know yeah and you know it, it, although you know at this point it's do you really need subtitles for these characters because you're not really connected to anything they say it's yeah. much more like the visual story with them or whatever so yeah i mean and uh i guess that's the other thing is that other than um yeah this is a little bit unfair but i didn't feel like any of the characters particularly james darren um i i didn't care about him like as a person i never got a sense of like kind of who he was other than the fact that he's dating uh, Barbara McNair, which means he's probably a pretty decent guy to, to end up with her even mm-hmm. briefly. You know, the, the people that she kills, the the kind of the other guy as well, you know, um, Klaus Kinski and then um, Margaret Lee are both, uh, I think, uh, I kind of get a sense of who they are as people, but I, I didn't get a sense of the other guy. I was like, oh, who well, yeah, he know? didn't, he, he actually had no lines at all in the entire film. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's funny. Um, uh, despite yeah. the fact that his scene is probably the I mean the best scene in the film, the scene where he dies is the one I already talked about. Yeah. And I, I love that. I love that scene. But you you're right. Yeah, no, he has no lines. That's yeah. it's great. I don't know. I like the film overall. I just kinda I don't know, it just it doesn't it doesn't quite click for me though. I like it enough that I want to like it more and it doesn't quite click for me. And um you know. I just yeah. I kind of feel like it's a little bit of a swing and a miss, but definitely worth checking out. It's definitely worth spending a little bit of money on if you have to in order to see it. So yeah, uh, out of all the stuff I've seen from Franco, I would not say this is his best film. I would say it's his most accomplished one, though. Like just oh, yeah, yeah. visually and stylistically, he had the money. He could put a lot of stuff that he's been wanting to put on film for a long while, and he threw it on here. So I think in that regard, it's really good. Um, I would still say I really enjoy She Killed in Ecstasy and Vampiros Lesbos way more than this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, I think those films are just, they're a lot more fun and you kind of root for them more because it's like, yeah, Franco had nothing to work with other than Solid Ed Miranda, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> which is which is enough. Like, you know. Yeah. But, you know, he had no budget. Yeah, so let's include an eight-minute scene of Soledad Miranda dancing because uh, <laughs> we have eight minutes of movie to fill and twenty dollars to do it with. So you know, yeah, I mean it's a clothing budget when you have Soledad Miranda. But... Yeah, no, the clothing. Oh, budget some is... of the costumes in this. I sorry before you. Some of the costumes in this are pretty phenomenal. Oh um, yeah, the, the, some of the wigs. My wife was kind of watching this with me this evening, and uh, she was like, "No, send me a photo of that hairdo because I'm gonna get my hair cut like soon." Nice. <laughs> yeah, like, all the design in this, like the art direction, everything's great. Like some of the rooms in the in, in this are like red velvet walls and uh, green beds and yeah, yeah. doorways that look it's like a, mirrors. And... It's a very colorful era for cinema, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. DVD info for this, uh, Blue Underground 2005 is your best bet. There's no Blu-ray for this. 
Again, like you said, Amazon video uh, from the full moon people is a good way to see this. Also, you can also see this on Internet Archive and in two parts on Daily Motion, and both of those prints are really good as well. So uh, I'm, I'm assuming it's probably just basically the same print. The the print looked fine. There's one bit at the very beginning which has some um, streaks, some uh, what looked to be projector damage uh, in the um, uh, in the scene. It's slow motion. Oh, so okay. I should talk about the slow motion, but there's a, there's a, a moment kind of towards the beginning. There's like a shot where it's kind of looking out towards the ocean right before the body washes up, and he kind of right. turns it over. There are a couple of like streaks down that, yeah. down that particular shot, and I think that that's the only time I ever saw any kind of physical damage on the front. The slow motion stuff. There's like a chase scene. There's like an action scene where there's a car chase scene. Mm-hmm. And there's some other stuff, and it feels like they undercranked it, but then they had some motion blur. Because right. they were, you know, it was kind of like shaky cam plus undercranking the the speed, uh, which kind of leads to what we now think of as compositing errors. But it's not, I mean, it's not digital. It's not a compositing error. It's just, this is just sort of the reality of like, this is what <laughs> ended up on the film, right? Um, which is a really, uh, it's kind of an ugly look by modern eyes, but that's because we kind of anticipated as being kind of a bad digital effect or a bad video right. effect. But um, the reality is it, it actually like when you, when you think about like when, and, when and how it was made, it actually does kind of fit with the uh, slightly disconnected from reality um, nature of it. So I just, uh, I did notice that when I was watching it and kind of like, wow, there... this is kind of painful to watch, but I think it maybe is playing differently to me now than it would have 40 years ago. There, there's a lot of happy mistakes, I think, in this film that sort of just play to the narratives. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, uh, those, those are the places you can find it. Daniel, where can people find you on the Internet? No one should find me. Uh, but if you do want to find me, come uh, check me out on Twitter. I'm at Daniel Lee Harper. Um, all my stuff goes there. Cool. You can find us at tmbdos.podbean.com, or you can find our YouTube, our Apple podcast, and our Facebook links, uh, Facebook group. They must be destroyed in sight. Best way to get in touch with us and find out what's going on on the podcast. Next week is going to be another Franco film. We're going to be looking at Franco's Dracula with Christopher mm-hmm. Lee. Oh, so whoa. yeah. And Klaus Kinski as well returning. And uh, Maria Rahm also makes a return as well in that film. Oh, well, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. But until then, uh, everybody, thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me, Daniel. And uh, we will see you guys again when we see you. Goodbye. Cheers. Show no mercy then, no mercy will be shown For those who got their pleasures from the strangled cries and groans The grins that fill their evil faces will be wiped for sure Sometimes someone somewhere will come knocking Knocking on the door
for putting up a fight. A price they'll have to pay one day, the price will be to die. They'll find that there's no one to protect them anymore. Sometime someone somewhere will come knocking. Well, they'll come knocking on the door. Venus in birds will be smiling. Oh, when that moment You've been listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For other episodes, our Apple Podcast, YouTube, and Facebook group links, as well as podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. Thank you. Drive through. <laughs>